Well, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I uh, invite you to take it and turn to the book of Genesis as we conclude our series in uh, going through the life of Joseph found in Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50. And what a sanctifying series this has been for me. And I trust it has for you as well. We're going to read, uh, just kind of finishing off, uh, we're going to focus just on a, on a narrow, narrow, narrower section of the passage this morning. But I want to find ourselves, pick up where we left off last week and read through chapter 50. Remember, Jacob has blessed his sons, telling them of their future. And in verse 29 of chapter 49, it says this. Then he commanded them, that's to his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of uh, Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah and his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And I love the phrase that he was gathered to his people. Because the Bible says for the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is to be with all of the other of the Lord's people who have gone before him. And so we have a picture here of the resurrection and of life after death for those who have their faith in Christ and God's promises. It says in verse 50, verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, so that is how many, uh, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have now found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they had came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation and he made a mourning for his father seven days when the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad they said this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians therefore the place was called Abel Misraim it is beyond the Jordan 
Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him into the land, into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the, uh, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now notice what happens. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, well, it, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he has swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Daniel Doriani shares this illustration in a book that he wrote titled, Getting the Message. A science teacher stood before his eager class of, of freshman students, and he held up a beaker with a yellowish substance inside. And the teacher began his first class. And he says, the essence of the scientific method from electron microscopes to the Hubble telescope is observation. Whatever tools we devise, the human senses remain the conduit for all information. Furthermore, he told this eager freshman class, even the unaided human senses have enormous power. For example, we have before us a vial of horse sweat. Let us see what we can learn from it. Please do as I do. He then dipped his index finger into the beaker and licked his finger. Dismayed, but under the spell of authority, the students dutifully dipped their index fingers into the vial and licked them. After each student had taken its turn, the professor asked them, what have you learned from this? As he surveyed their startled faces. He says, you have already discovered the importance of observation, you see. 
he said, holding up his fingers, I licked my ring finger. (laughs) There's a great need for Christians to take a close look and observe what God actually says about his forgiveness for those who trust in Christ Jesus as their crucified and risen Savior. Many here need to take a close look at what the Bible says and observe that while God is a forgiving God, his forgiveness does indeed last forever. And his forgiveness reaches to those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And if you have called on the name of the Lord to be saved, you need to look closely and observe the Bible and see that your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven forever, never to be held against you again. In 2018, uh, a Pew Research uh, put out, uh, the Pew Research Center put out an article on the religious beliefs of those in Western Europe. And a 32-year-old woman uh, commenting on, on why she answered a series of questions that she answered said this about the survey. She said, I'd really love to believe, in God that is, she said, I'd really love to believe as I, I see how much it helps many people. I can see the help it can bring. Unfortunately, it never really did so for me. And for me, God is just a story. And I wonder how many people in this room this morning, even among Christians, to a certain extent, think that God's forgiveness is just a story. Something we're supposed to say and something we're supposed to, with something we hear preachers preach about, writers write about, social media posts post about, but when it comes down to it, it seems like God's forgiveness of our sins is just a story. And a story that we often don't think we're a part of. Well, if you've never confessed your sins to God, repented, of your own attempts at salvation and place your faith in Jesus, then you aren't part of God's forgiveness story. But if you do believe in your heart that Jesus died for you and rose again, then you are forgiven. Now when we come to Genesis chapter 50, Joseph dies at the end of this story, but there's a lot of kind of loose ends that are tied up as we finish things out. If there's one thing Joseph's brothers will know for certain by the time Joseph's story is over and he dies and moves on, it's that they are forgiven and that God worked all things, even their sin, according to his purposes. And I think if we could list just two loose ends, if we were to take a survey of most Christians, many Christians in the church today, And we were just asked, what are the two loose ends that really keep you from believing and trusting God? Those two things, I imagine for many, would be, number one, am I really forgiven? Am I really forgiven? And then number two, is God really working all things, controlling all things to accomplish his purposes and my good? 
I have a sliding barn door for the shed at my house, but there's, there's nothing to block the wheels if they go one way or the other. So if you push it too far on one side of the track, it, comes, it derails, and then if you push it too far the other way, it derails. And I feel like that's sometimes the pictures we get with Christians. Maybe you're in here saying, I'm derailing because when it comes to confidence in God's forgiveness, there's, I just keep derailing on that. Or maybe in here when you're saying, I just, I just keep derailing when it comes to God's providence and God's working everything to get uh, together for good. And I'm, just, and I'm just derailing on that side of things. And I think what this passage does specific, specifically in verses 15 to 21 is it gives us ballast. It gives us confidence. Now I want to ask the question here, what we know about the brothers from this passage. What do we know about the brothers? Well, we know, because it's said twice by Joseph, where he says, do not fear. So we know they're fearful. They are haunted by thoughts of pending judgment now that their father Jacob has died. They are filled with fright because now it's just them and Joseph. It's them and the judge. It's them and the second ruler of Egypt. Now, in their minds, there's no protection. There's no father to stand in the way, no one in between. We also know about the brothers that their imaginations have taken over, taken over truth. They imagine Joseph as this ruthless uh, sort of killer, just ready to pay them back. Yet Joseph has never, never just even given the slightest hint that he has held their sins against him. Yet they're still fearful, and they're still, their imaginations are still running, running wild with that. This Joseph is just getting ready to pounce on us and pay us back for everything we've ever done wrong. We know that from the brothers that their past still haunts them. And we know that they are having very much a lot of trouble believing that they are truly forgiven by Joseph and they are safe in him. We also know that their goal in this is to persuade Joseph to forgive them by sending a message. Uh, and remember the message here in verse 16. Uh, they sent Joseph, uh, Joseph a message saying, your father gave us this command before he died. That is most likely totally fabricated. If Anything else, it certainly can't be validated in Scripture. But it's kind of their way of saying, hey, uh, here's what Dad said before he died. Here's the parting words he said. And then we know that even beyond that, their goal is to persuade Joseph to forgive them by sending this most likely fabricated message. And then even offering themselves to lose their status as brothers and just become Joseph's slave. These brothers are given to fear and doubt. And we know that they are not convinced of where they stand with Joseph. And that they're convinced their sin is still being held against them. We know that they can bear the guilt of their sin no longer. Nor can they bear the, the weight of of the imagination of what they've stirred up about Joseph. They can't take it any longer. So they scrape and they claw to get Joseph to forgive them. 
They doubt whether or not they have truly been forgiven, and they're living in this great fear of God's judgment. And beyond that, the other thing we know about these brothers is that you and I face the exact same thing today. Has God really forgiven me? Is God holding that one thing against me? Followers of Jesus often face the baseless fear of God's judgment. The brothers belong in the category of doubters. And as I was thinking through this passage, it reminded me of another group of doubters. It was actually the disciples of Jesus. I think I've shared this perhaps with you before, but it's in Matthew chapter uh, 28, verse 16 and 17, right before Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission. And this is after Jesus' res resurrection, and he sends them to Galilee. So it says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. This is incredible to me. That here they are, the 11 disciples, seeing the resurrected Jesus. They saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And he was right there. People who saw the resurrected Christ still doubted? I think this shows us that struggles with doubts and questions are normal stuff for Christians. And the good news is we don't have to be stuck in those doubts or in those questions. Because the good news about this passage is that this passage, the good news is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is living proof that our sins are truly forgiven and he really is going to return to take us to heaven. That's living proof because he's a living Jesus and we have all the confidence we need even when we doubt. Christian, if you ever wonder if God has forgiven you and loves you, ask yourself this question. When, you, when those come, and they do come, and they do come, and some of you are wrestling with them right now. When those questions come of, has God really forgiven me? Does God really love me? Ask yourself this one question, is Jesus alive? Because if Jesus is alive, that is living proof that for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Their sins will be forgiven forever, past, present, future. Even that one that just keeps coming to mind and says, oh man, God only knew, he does by the way, about that email I sent, about that thing I did. Or if my husband or my wife would only find out, if the pastor found out, if this one found out, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. And for those of you in here who may even have a religious repertoire longer than the Pope's, if you've never personally placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are not forgiven. And you are dead. And you're a whitewashed tomb. Yet even you, ought to ask, and Jesus will forgive, because he's alive. 
This is a story about Joseph's brothers wondering if Joseph's forgiveness was genuine, enduring, and constant. What we read about in Genesis chapter 50 is an enduring human situation, doubting God's forgiveness. Look at the repeated words here from the, from the brothers. Uh, they, 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 send a, they send a message to him and says, uh, your father gave us this command, please forgive the transgression of your brothers because they did evil to you. And then the brothers say, and now please forgive. They're on a quest for forgiveness. But I want you to notice something very interesting about this passage. Notice what Joseph never says in here. What does Joseph never say in here? Joseph never says, I forgive you. He never even says, you're forgiven. And he's saying that is because, and instead, instead of saying, you're forgiven, he's saying, don't fear. Don't fear. The forgiveness has already happened. He's asking them to believe in the forgiveness that has already taken place. And he's saying, just don't fear. Forgiveness has already happened. There's no unforgiving you. He calls them to stop fearing, to rest in his forgiveness, his comfort. And I love, I love the commentary that the, the writer puts in the story. Okay, this is Moses' commentary on the story. Thus he comforted them. This is the very last phrase of verse 21. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's what God wants to do to you, do for you, and does indeed do. The fact of the matter here is that the brothers didn't believe Joseph. And today, God invites you to participate in the great rescue his truth offers. The question is this, will you believe your wandering imaginations about who you think God is? Or will you observe, you observe what the Bible says and let the truth of the Bible rescue you from the miry bog of fear and doubt and sin. That's the theme of today's message. God's forgiveness lasts forever. He wants to comfort us in our doubts and rescue us from our errant imaginations. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, dot, 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 forever. And Joseph gives us a wonderful example of what I believe God is saying. And if you want to truly be able to embrace the forgiveness of God, you have to let go of the sins that God has already let go of. Christian, three things this morning. Christian, believe God's word. You are forgiven. Christian, follower of Jesus, believe God's word, you are forgiven. The full reality of Jacob's death has kind of set their brothers, again, like we've already talked about, in this crazy imagination. They just begin to run wild, like wild horses. Can't be tamed. Has, ever, has your mind ever been like that? It's just like a wild horse that just can't be tamed and you just can't calm it down and you've tried and tried. 
They become so convinced that Joseph is going to turn towards them in hatred. He's going to pay them back for what they did. And what, remember, this story started with Joseph's brothers hating him. And so now the brothers believe it's going to come full circle. Joseph is going to hate the brothers. It's payback time. But that's not. That's in their minds. But it's not the truth. They think it's Joseph's turn to give full vent to his anger and hatred and, and let, him, let him really let him have it. And it's all completely imaginary. There has not been a shred of evidence, evidence or any inclination at all that Joseph has said or done anything to cause them to think this way. Actually, he's done the exact opposite to try to reassure them they are forgiven. Our thoughts can be like this. They can just run wild and wilder. And this is why we need to believe God's word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so this word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That's why I say, that's why I say Christian, you've got to believe God's word. You've got to believe God's word. You can't just read it. You've got to believe it. You've got to let it get to your mind and your thoughts. If you're not thinking right, God will speak. I love this. I love how Joseph speaks kindly to them. Christians, that's how God speaks to you. Kindly. He's not yelling and screaming. He's not flying off the handle. He's just giving you kindly spoken truth. Because he wants to comfort you in your doubts. And he wants to get rid of those errant imaginations that you have about him. We need to turn to God's word because only God can discern our thoughts. Psalm 139. And the brothers do something that, I mean, isn't really totally out of the ordinary. And wasn't necessarily wrong to do. They send a message instead of going to Joseph in person. This happens, we see this happen a number of times uh, in scripture. Uh, one thing that just comes to mind is, is David uh, with his son Absalom sends a message instead of approaching in person. This happens when instead of going to your foe, you just want to get a message across. Uh, instead of uh, approaching your foe directly because, of, you know, there's extreme, uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of apprehensiveness here and extreme worry. But think about what their doubt did. It labeled Joseph as the foe, as the enemy. That's, that's often what we do. Satan wants to sow seeds of false teaching in Christians to lead them to conclude that God is their enemy. So imagine you're, just, you're a traveling companion with these ten older brothers. Okay? But just, in, just imagine that instead of approaching Joseph, you're approaching God. And you've already got it in your mind. You're convinced that even though God has said he's forgiven you, you're, just, you're convinced that God is ready to hammer it at you. He, he doesn't forgive you. He doesn't love you. He's ready to take you out. And you're approaching God. And as you approach God, you send a message. And you send it, and it's one written by the words of another preacher or an author. And you approach trembling and apprehensive, and your sins are raging at the forefront 
of your mind. And you're thinking, there's just no way I could stand before God on my own. And so you're trying to send things. Maybe it's like religious things. We're trying to send religious messages ahead of us to God. Okay, hey, God, I went to church today. So let's just, just be ready here. You know, just settle down because I'm about to come with, you for, uh, with some sin. Hey, God, I listened to some uh, Christian music today. I listened to some preaching. I heard David Jeremiah say something on the radio that was really good. So, God, I just pray that you would listen to him. And as I come to you, I'm really coming in the words of Jeremiah, who is sending a message before you to prepare the way for me. And we go on and on. God, I heard something about John MacArthur. John MacArthur said something really good today. And, you know, Lord, here, here I come. And we're just convinced no way I can stand before God on my own, which is actually the bad news is because you can't. You can't stand before God on your own. But the good news is God provided a Savior who is an advocate before the Father who's given you the Holy Spirit to give you direct access to that God so that you can stand before God with Jesus by your side, who is your advocate, who is your intercessor, who is your defender, who is your Savior. And this is the whole thing about it. God wants you in his presence God wants you to come to the throne of grace, not fearing his judgment. And we're reminded on a day like today of those great words that start the second paragraph of the United States Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And then there it goes. Well, when it comes to our forgiveness before God and when we approach God, we must go to God proclaiming, we hold these truths to be biblically evident from what God says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is forgiven. Their sins or are forgotten. Now you may say, it's easy to say, we always hear God forgives our sins. What does that mean? Well, if you tie a few things of scripture together, it means that as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed your transgressions, it says in Psalm 103, from you. You, are, you may be holding on to a sin that God has cast so far away that not even a supersonic speeder from Star Wars in a galaxy far, far, far away could ever catch up to you. It's gone. It means that God is... As far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed your transgressions from you. It means your sins are covered by the blood of Christ, Psalm 32. It means your sins are no longer counted against you, Psalm 32. It means you've been delivered from the pit of destruction. It means your sins have been blotted out of your record, Acts 3.19. It means your sins are trampled under the feet of God, Micah chapter 7.19. It means God no longer holds your iniquities against you. He no longer even marks them. Psalm 130 verse 3. It means that any sins you're coddling or trying to nurse to get God's forgiveness has already been cast away for all eternity. And you're just causing yourself more turmoil. And God is saying, your sin in my eyes is already so far away I can't even see it. Believer... Follower of Jesus, believe God's word, you are forgiven. Second, believe you are accepted. 
the thrust of the message the brothers gave Joseph was basically this. Hey, Joseph, dad left instructions for you. You're supposed to forgive us for doing all this evil stuff. Again, at the very least, unverifiable, probably complete fabrication, but hey, you're under that much stress. You got to try something, right? And they were hoping that Joseph's love for Jacob would motivate love towards the brothers. Now think about that. Joseph, I'm hoping your love for your father will turn and cause you to love us and maybe take it easy on us. But Joseph didn't just love his father. He loved those who sinned against him. Joseph reads the note. And apparently, from what we get in the story, the brothers are not far behind the note. So they send the message, Joseph reads it, and all of a sudden, right there, the brothers are right there saying, please forgive us, you know, and they fall down before him in verse 18. So apparently this is, you know, a pretty close thing going on here. And they fall down and they offer themselves as slaves. And what was Joseph's response? He wept. He wept. Remember, this is 17 years later. 17 years later. In chapter 45, Joseph tried to calm their fears and testify to God's providence even in their sin. And I think Joseph is weeping because it's, he's almost weeping because, not because he's angry at them or upset, but just, it just he's, he's realizing it, it was all in vain. For Joseph, he's saying, what more could I have done to show you my love and my forgiveness? Yet they still doubted. More than that, they were convinced that Joseph was just putting on this front for the past 17 years. And the moment Jacob died, he had some sinister plan waiting to be hatched just at the right time. And these brothers were essentially making an appeal to Joseph to accept them on whatever terms he deemed necessary. But just as long as Joseph put the hammer in the closet, so to speak. talked about this already but what do you send ahead to God in hopes he'll accept you and not crush you going to church listening to Christian music having a better devotional life being more patient with your family being a deacon a pastor a teacher I got all these things God I've got a list of things that you should accept you should can accept me if I'm honest with you I have trouble not esteeming my own righteousness before God trying to put something out there there's this sin and rebellion in me that wants there to be at least a sliver of some self-contained goodness within me on which God accepts me. Certainly, God, there's got to be something, just a tiny little sliver where you will accept me. And sometimes I try and look, and at times I just laughably present to God something from within me, something that I've done. That at least maybe plays a small part in God's acceptance of me. But we all try to do things to be accepted by God. But here's the thing for every single person in this room. God will never accept you or me simply by yourself. We are accepted in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Uh, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now for those of you who are using the King James Version, 
or the New King James Version. Your version says, uh, it says, uh, it says we've, uh, that Christ has made, made us accepted in the Beloved. I love that phrase. Accepted in the Beloved. Charles Spurgeon says, the moment we repent and believe in Christ, God makes us completely, fully accepted in the Beloved. His beloved son, with whom he is well pleased, and because we are in him, oh, amazing grace, God is also well pleased with us. Let's remember what we're aiming for from the beginning of this message before we close. God's forgiveness lasts forever. He wants to comfort us in our doubts and rescue us from our errant imaginations. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and all your sins, past, present, future, are forgiven forever. Here's the final thing I want to leave you with this morning. Follower of Jesus, believe God's word. You are not forsaken, nor will you ever be. You should add that to your notes because that's not up there. Believe God's word. You are not forsaken, nor will you ever be. This, the, the last phrase, words of comfort and kindness. And again, Joseph never says you're forgiven. He never tries to say, listen, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. He had already forgiven them. And what he tries to do now is allay their fears by asserting his comfort. Joseph has no desire for retribution because he saw things from God's perspective. We already had a message on that. But we see him repeat the exact same phrase he spoke in Genesis 45. Am I in the place of God? If God wants to exact revenge on them, then let God be the one to do it. Uh, commentator Victor Hamilton says, Joseph will only be God's instrument, never his substitute. Joseph here in uh, verse 19 is setting the record straight. It was them and God. God was the God of their eternity. God is the one who could destroy their soul. They had nothing to fear before Joseph, a mere man, but he had forgiven them. And God desires for you to take comfort in the shadow of his saving wings and not try to play God towards yourself. What I'm saying is this, don't speak for God untrue things towards you. Okay, put another way, when we look at Joseph's question, am I in the place of God? So many Christians doubt their salvation or doubt God's forgiveness because they've placed themselves in the place of God. And they say, if I was God, I wouldn't forgive myself. We must believe that our sins are forgiven and forgotten. And this is something so clear in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, there was something that happened once every year, and it included two goats. And it was called the Day of Atonement. Atonement, if you wonder what that word means, atonement is where there's a separation, and it brings the two parties together in unity. So the Day of Atonement describes how the people who are separated from God can become united with this holy God, even though the people were sinful. So the Day of Atonement was designed by God for the people to symbolically transfer all of their sins onto a substitute goat. And here's how it worked. And this is all according to Leviticus 19. We're not going to turn there. Of the two goats, all the sins were symbolically transferred to the one goat, and that goat was killed. And the blood was shed. And that signified forgiveness from sins. But the other goat was taken out until the wilderness and set free. 
never to return home again. Which was to signify that God had not only forgiven their sins, but he had forgotten their sins. One goat was killed to provide forgiveness, to be a substitute for the sinful Israelites. The other goat was taken out into the wilderness to signify that God had forgotten their sin. Forgiven, forgotten. Those are the two words you ought to remember when it comes to God and your sin, if you're a follower of Jesus. Forgiven, forgotten. Now, we aren't saved by two goats today, but they were reminders, they were pointers of God's grace and of a greater, all-sufficient sacrifice yet to come. Jesus was taken outside of Jerusalem, out into the wilderness. Jesus suffered and died and became our substitute. And through Jesus, our sins are totally forgiven and forgotten forever. If your idea is Jesus through baptism or Jesus through communion or Jesus through church membership or religious activity, you've got no salvation. You are not saved. It's in Jesus Christ alone who died and rose again. And God has no desire for retribution towards you or your sins because Jesus absorbed every ounce of wrath that God had towards you in your sins. Remember our theme. Before I close with one final quote, God's forgiveness lasts forever. And he wants to comfort us in our doubts and rescue us from our errant imaginations. Here's what Milton Vincent says in his book, A Gospel Primer. And I close with this. He says, now when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave all of my sins, past, present, and future. He made me his child, adopting me into his family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit, who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I am a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again. For sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God had also justified me. In being justified through Christ, I have peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus, who bore it upon himself while on the cross. And just a segment will be on the screen here for you, where he says this, Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me, and this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. When I sin... God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. And he longs for me to repent. And, and he does long for me to, uh, to repent and confess my sins to him. So that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. In his heart, he has already forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me. And is repeatedly embracing and kissing me, even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. God does see my sins. 
and he is grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I am not receiving the fullness of his love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life, but he does so because he is for me, and he loves me, and he disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day. But this is my salvation, and here and I stand. Thank you, Jesus. Christian, you must dare to believe that all your sins through faith in Christ are completely forgiven. You must open your heart to him in faith, in his death on the cross, and his resurrection, and dare to believe that all your sins are forgiven and forgotten. Of all the things there is to believe about God, this is probably the hardest to grasp, but it must be grasped by faith today. Yet some of you in here this morning need to grasp the fact that your sins are not forgiven. And it's because you've never turned away from trusting in yourself and in your works and placed your faith in Jesus. And you're still in your sins, and you know it. And there's an eternal, tormenting hell waiting for you because of sin. But God is near you. And his gospel has been spoken to you even today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, if I could, well, who cares if I could? God, I know you can, and I know you see in the hearts of many people. I assume you see it's pretty obvious from the conversations I have. You see in people this morning, even in my own heart, sense of unworthiness, the sense of, does God really love me? Is God just waiting with a hammer that's ready to bring you down? God, help us to get our minds on your word. We don't need to take John MacArthur, John Piper, David, Jeremiah, Matt Chandler, Kevin DeYoung, Mark Dever, Warren Wearsby, any other author, blogger, poster, whatever. We don't, need to, we don't need to take them to you. We need to take your word and plant it deep in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our minds, and believe it, and believe it, and believe it, that our sins are forgiven. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Forgive the sins of those who've never placed their faith in you. May today be the day of salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.